This week, the Music Biz Weekly Podcast, an incredible discussion with musician, songwriter, singer, Justin Warfield. We talk about the importance of taking risks in your career. We talk about the importance of not burning bridges in your career. Uh, we talk about creativity. Um, there's so much great information imparted by Justin this week. You do not want to miss this episode. Welcome to the Music Biz Weekly Podcast, founded in 2011 and with over 500 weekly episodes, where Michael Brandvold and Jay Gilbert, two longtime music industry pros, discuss the very latest trends, tools, and tactics that you need to succeed in this new music business. Build a stunning band website in minutes with Bandzoogle. Go to Bandzoogle.com to start your free 30-day trial and use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. Thousands of musicians and industry professionals listen to the Music Biz Weekly podcast. If you have a product or service and would like to reach this audience, get in touch with Michael or Jay to discuss sponsorship opportunities. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly podcast. I'm flying solo this week. Jay has got some client uh, business he had to deal with. So it's just myself. We've got an incredible discussion coming up. Uh, this isn't going to be about marketing techniques. This isn't about tools this week. This is about creativity and being a musician and, and the issues a musician might, uh, encounter. But before we get into that, I want to make a quick couple quick mentions here. First of all, hopefully you've checked out and if not do it now, check out bandsintown.musicbizweeklypodcast.com. It's our new artist community. On Bands in Town, we post every episode there as well as everywhere else you've been listening, but we have discussions going on related to that week's episode. You can post any questions, comments, issues, you name it. Jay and I hang out there. Other people from Bands in Town are hanging out there. Other musicians are hanging out there. It's a great community to ask questions and get some support. Um, and of course, I want to do a quick shout out to everybody who has supported us. Thank you to Bruce and HypeBot and Bands in Town for all your continued support. And to our sponsors, Bandzoogle.com, built by musicians for musicians. Bandzoogle is an all-in-one platform that makes it easy to build a beautiful website and EPK for your music. Bandzoogle powers the websites for tens of thousands of musicians around the world from weekend warriors to Grammy winners. All the features you need for a professional website are already built in, including hosting and a custom domain name, dozens of fully customizable design templates, tools to sell your music and merch commission-free, commission-free crowdfunding and fan subscription features, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, social media integrations, and of course, amazing live tech support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. We got a great offer for all of our listeners out there. Head over to bandzoogle.com, sign up, try it for free for 30 days. And when you register, be sure to use the promo code MUSICBIZWEEKLY, all one word, MUSICBIZWEEKLY, and you're going to save 15% off the first year of any subscription. And of course, discmakers.com. We know it's a digital world, but there's still an important role for physical media for today's musicians. Digital royalty payments can be so small that selling products like CDs, vinyl, T-shirts, online and at gigs has become such an important income generator. For every CD you sell at a gig, you might need roughly 3,000 streams to make the same amount of money. That's a lot of streams. That's a lot of marketing. Our friends at Disc Makers are the place to go for your discs and other physical media, including vinyl, USB drives, and even t-shirts. So again, we've got a great little offer for all of our listeners. Head over to discmakers.com, place an order for 100 or more CDs, and when you check out, use the promo code FREEBIZ, all one word, FREEBIZ, and you will save up to $150 in shipping costs. So this week, great discussion with uh, LA born and bred Justin Warfield. Justin's a great musician. He's got an incredible history that he shares with us. He signed his first label deal at the age of 16 following a visit 
to the Montreux Jazz Festival with Quincy Jones in 91. But uh, Justin shares a lot of insight as a musician about taking risks, why you need to take risks, um, why you need to treat everyone in your journey, in your career as somebody who's important. Um, you know, there's, there's just so much great information that Justin shares with us. This is all about being a musician, how to overcome issues and hurdles and taking risks and why it's so important not to burn any bridges in your career. So let it roll. Justin Warfield, we'll see you at the end. Hey, Music Biz Weekly podcast listeners. I am really honored today to be joined by this week's guest, Justin Warfield. And, you know, Justin, your, your list of who your history is sort of a great discussion in itself. And I think you would be the best person to tell everybody who you are and, and what you've done and how did you get to where you are? So give us your five minute elevator pitch. Gotcha. Um, first off, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have a conversation with you and I welcome the opportunity. Um, so thank you. Um, my story is interesting. I was born into the music industry in that my father was a promo man. He worked at 20th Century Records in the early 70s. I was born. He moved over to CBS Records in its early days, which I'm sure you remember those days. It was before Sony. And he worked for CBS Records at the time when the Jacksons left um, Motown and ceased to be the Jackson 5 and became the Jacksons. The same time Michael Jackson released a solo record called Off the Wall. And my dad was one of the lead promo men on that. So he worked wow. with, Mike, from Mike, with Michael from pre you know, pre Jack, pre Michael Jackson solo, where I'd be at in-store signings, uh, you know, for those who don't know, you know, right. when you right. go to promote at a record store, you know, so I was at in-stores with the Jacksons. I was around for off the wall, thriller, bad, dangerous. My dad promoted Luther Vandross, Tina Marie, a lot of notables. What, um, what, what a time to be in the music industry. What a time, I mean, just such a different era. And I just, I, I, I look back on it so fondly. I'm so fortunate as a, as a seventies baby to have grown up in that and to be at Barry White's house or, you know, my dad's best friend who he said is my godfather was Melvin Franklin and the temptation. So I had this background, but the music of my household was that my mom was into folk and rock and roll and the Beatles. And my dad was into soul music and R and B, but I was coming up learning about new wave and the new emerging hip hop in the early eighties. And so I did have a foundation in soul and classic rock. These are the things that I was finding interest in. And so I wanted to be a filmmaker. I wanted to be a writer. I studied that in middle school at private school. And then I was writing raps. And it just so happened that a friend of mine found a piece of paper that was a lyric sheet that I had. And he said, what's this? I said, it's a rap I wrote. He said, would you mind rapping it for me? And he said, hey, you know, a good friend of ours, like their older brother is a producer and their dad is Quincy Jones. Let's go up to Quincy's house in Bel Air and you can rap for Quincy Jr. I knew his sisters. I didn't know him. He became, he, I rapped for him and I was 14 years old. And two years later, um, his father signed me to quest reprise records. And I put out my first single at the age of 16 in nine, uh, wow. a little bit older in 1991. I put out my first single at about 17 and it was like, Oh, I was on MTV raps and I was on BET and I was performing and my dad had no idea. And he's like, why are you on the charts on these <laughs> trade magazines? I have <laughs> what is that, that stuff you do in your bedroom actually. Okay. Wow. So jumping forward, I put out a record. I had a passion that took me away from hip hop. Cause I was really truly involved in the, the golden age of hip hop from 91 to 94. I was a part of it with the De La Souls, the Public Enemies, the Boogie Down Productions, and Tribe Called Quest. And it was a little bit like Henry Hill and Goodfellas where I had, I was a very young kid who was led into the Copa, but in the, this case, yep. the Copa was like DJ Red Alerts Club in New York City. I had unparalleled access and a world that was not because of my father's industry, but was in my industry. And I was starting to make a name for myself. I started to play alternative rock and made a hard pivot because that was a part of my life and something I was interested in. And I made another record. And then I, I recorded a one-off song that kind of became a hit in the UK and I became a press darling over there. And so in 1996, between 96 and 99, I moved to London and I had a whole career when drum and bass, jungle, trip hop and Brit pop emerged. I was an expat Brit obsessed kid from the San Fernando Valley 
living my dream in England, touring in a band. I came back in 99 and I did some uh, screenplay work and worked in um, developing some films. I kicked around with a couple of bands that, you know, were buzz bands around LA and made great music and made a couple of EPs. And then uh, I, I started working with a very close friend and we recorded some songs. And the next thing you know, I was on my third record deal. I had a band called She Wants Revenge. And the oh, short yeah. story is, yeah, we went from playing 100 people at the Silver Lake Lounge in Los Angeles to headlining the Greek that same year and, you know, sold a lot of records. And we're, we're of the last wave of bands where you could be on the side of Tower Records with the album yep, cover. Exactly. Which, you know, for someone of my age is very fulfilling. And that was great. But the underlying theme underneath all that that's more important than those sort of beats, right, is that all along the way I had mentors and I had people that guided me and I had people that I learned from. And then I found ways to then pay it forward and say, oh, this is a really interesting band. Hey, let's sign them to the label or, hey, this kid's great. Like, I want to help you. Why don't you come open for me? And so all along the way, I had an ear for A&R. I had an eye for that talent. I knew how to cultivate and develop it. And jumping forward to now being, you know, no longer the 16-year-old kid, but a soon-to-be 49-year-old man who has been signed to four labels, two publishing companies, endless booking agents. I've done A&R work. I've done music direction work for individuals, for bands, for labels and management companies. At present, I do independent label services and A&R consulting. And I work as the vice president of A&R and label services at a music technology company called Downright. And everything that I do, including still playing live music and managing an artist and, and, and advising younger talent is all coming from this pool of experience, relationships, tools, and lessons that I've learned through doing it for now 31 years, which is kind wow. of weird to say out loud. Wow. You know, as you're as you're as you're explaining and telling us all of that, I'm sitting here going, screw talking about all these other things that that the publicist said we can talk about. I'm like, <laughs> we could just talk about you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's oh, a no, there, there's no. a story there. But yeah, as you explain that, it there were two topics I really kind of wanted to try and focus on. Please, and now yeah. it makes them, it makes it more clear as to why these are important topics. And I'll, I'll, I'll list these two topics and let you kind of run with it. Um, sure. The first one is how taking risks can lead to the biggest rewards. And clearly, oh, yeah. as yeah. I'm hearing you explain your life, you were not afraid to take <laughs> risks. I mean, changing, changing genres is as big a risk as yeah. an artist could ever take. And we've all seen these stories of, hey, you're a rock star and now you want to be a country star. And everybody's like, where are they now? Because they didn't. Right. I mean, that's a huge risk. For sure. The, the other one that I want to touch on is Please. Um, your motto of, I'm a firm believer that everyone on your journey is important, even if at first you don't know why. Clearly, I can see in your whole journey, you encountered a lot of people that when you oh, first man. were introduced to them or saw them at a table, you're like, I don't know who they are. And I have no idea what they could do for me. But somewhere down the road, that changed. So kind of go off those two topics and let's dig into that. Because I think these are two Absolutely. things that, that a lot of, not just musicians, a lot of people don't want to take risks period sure. in your life it's scary. most people in life are risk averse because yes, it it's takes scary us out of, it's scary it takes us out of our comfort zone and as as a species right human beings like if we take it all the way back it's like do you want to venture out of your caves and know what's yeah, like exactly. out there where you might need food like that's scary right Ch changes yeah. people don't like change but as i tell everybody i'm like the only thing that is guaranteed in life is change so you've got to be able to deal with it. And, and, and a firm believer, everyone in your journey is important, goes right back to, you know, there's the old music industry cliche of don't burn your bridges. It's the most important lesson, man. It really is. Yeah. You never know that the person, the way I tell people, you know, and I, and I always tell, often tell younger artists is the person who's answering the phone or greeting you with the Diet Coke, the water or the coffee at the meeting that you're taking might be the person that has the power to drop you from the label or say yes to your tour support 10 years down the road. 
Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't know the last name of that person bringing you coffee because that person might be the grandson of the label president. And on a more human level, you should treat them with the same respect anyways, regardless of whether they're bringing you a Diet Coke water or coffee or what's seeing, showing you to the conference room or whether they're the person behind the desk that you're you know, carefully choosing your words with. But yeah. to your point about the risk, like starting with the risk aversion, like <clears throat> for me, the artist that inspired me musically and probably literary and cinematic people who influenced my, me as much as the music, my biggest inspiration, if you had to distill it to two people, I would probably say it would be David Bowie and Prince. And those are two artists that never played it safe. And if you talk about an artist who could be Ziggy Stardust, who could be the Thin White Duke, who could make a record like Low Lodger Heroes, who could make a record like Young Americans, which is playing with Philly and like, you know, African-American soul of the United States. If you could say that he can then work with Nile Rogers and make a chic record, but he also has Stevie Ray Vaughan on it. You can say that he can also work with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. That is clearly not somebody who right. is afraid of change. Right. And if Prince can, can go from doing sexed up Twin Cities funk that he helped create the sound of, and then he can also make psychedelic records like Around the World in a Day, which when I was in seventh grade, reminded me of Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper's and it resonated with me. And I saw the fact that this person had just done the most important record of my childhood, Purple Rain, and the follow-up record wasn't safe. He said, I'm gonna make a psychedelic soul record. Like to me, I never wanted to play it safe. And like, trust me, when I go to the high school reunions every 10 years, I see the results of like taking risks versus the people that played it safe. And oftentimes it's the, you know, the grass is greener and I'll say, God, you, you have a really like amazing life. And they're like, but think about the things you've done. And so I just know that it was never a choice to not take risks for me. Yeah. You know, and as, as you were talking about Prince, I'm like, that guy probably took the biggest risk ever at the height of his career in changing his name he dropped his name dropped his name i mean you That's you crazy. got to imagine everybody around him said you're <laughs> going to kill your career you Done. will it's, it's over you can't yeah. change your name i mean how big of a risk is that and he just went with it to the point of it i what i'm hearing from you is like you can't even look at it as a risk you just look at it as uh, another step in your life, another step in your career, and you don't worry about failure because inevitably failure is always there. It's always going to happen. But if you only focus on failure, you're always worried about failing. So don't even well, deal with and it. And it also, 100%, but it also depends upon the metric by which you judge failure because if, if you're yes. doing it to be creatively satisfied, then- you might not, you might make a stinker of a song or an album, but at least if you follow your own muse, you're creatively satisfied. So that isn't failure. Yeah. And the truth is, is that the people that I grew up loving, it's like, I see, you know, I know your history with Kiss and, and as somebody that was born in 73 and was actually like cognizant of all that and, you know, kissing the Phantom of the Park and these different things in my life that were touchstones as a kid. I have pictures of me and Peter Chris makeup at my birthday party where the rest of the 17 year olds are playing in the bands and I'm and I'm in Peter Chris face paint like Beth is a departure it's not rock and roll yeah. all night you know I was made for loving you is a super bold move to throw a disco backbeat against it like make you know ultimately I've never looked at it as risk I've looked at it as evolution that people that I look at when I look at Lou Reed when I look at David Bowie when I look at um the hip hop artists and the soul artists that inspired me when I look at the folkies, when I, cause like I was, Bob Dylan was equally important in my life uh, for me as a lyricist and as a kid. And I, if I look at like highway 61 Re revisited or like blonde on blonde, like that's totally different than when he like takes a Canadian band and goes, Hey, we're going to go electric and we're going to go rock and do this like roadshow review. Like to me, the thrill of life is taking risks, whether you're talking about daring to ask someone on a date, and like go outside of your comfort zone or whether you are saying, should we become parents or, or you're like, do I want to make this record? Like to me, that's the whole thing. Like that's the yep. juice. You know? yep. Yeah. It, I, I, I feel like if you try and manage and calculate and control the risk, 
that's when that risk is probably going to end up biting you in the butt and messing things up and not working because you're, 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 you know, you've got to just let it organically happen. You've got to believe in it and just do it because if you, if you do believe in what you're doing, you're not actually risking anything. Other people will say you're risking something. It's a perceived risk from the outside. Right. And, and back to your point, you know, you've got to, you've got to believe in it. You know, one of the things I tell clients all the time is like, you know, that song you're recording, you can ask me what I think, but my opinion shouldn't matter to you because my name isn't on that song. My name and my picture are not on the album cover. Yours will be for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So if you record a song that you're not completely believing in, but because everybody else told you that's what it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And then you sit back and go, God, that was the biggest embarrassment and mistake I've ever made. You live with it the rest of your life, not your producer, not the president of the label, not your marketing person. So to your point, record what you love and what you believe in, because even if it's not successful, you can wake up every day and go, I'm proud of that song just didn't hit but i love it yeah i mean trust me i've been doing this for three decades and there's definitely a body of work that i it's shocking that i allowed it to happen and had my hand on the wheel as it did um but what's even more impressive in the hindsight of looking at my life and music is that i made a record that i'm so unhappy with and so shocked that i was in the headspace for various reasons to where i allowed that to happen and made that happen but what's even more impressive is making something that I'm so embarrassed by, but less than nine months later, I figured it out and made something that I'm maybe one of the most proud of. And so it's that ability to learn. And it's like Lou Reed said, it's like you're growing up in public and you're kind of leaving this trail. And to your point about what you said about sort of like, if you hesitate, like that, like what I thought of was like, I skateboard. And like, if you're in a, a pool or a half pipe, you know, these things you see on TV in the yeah. X games. And if you're standing on the edge and like you have your tail, your foot on the tail of the skateboard and you're looking down at 15 feet and three feet of vertical wood that goes like this, you have to fully commit your body to the movement. Otherwise you will hurt yourself you will because fall. when you hesitate, you actually will fall and hurt yourself. And it's actually the same thing with anything, whether it's life, love, music, writing, anything. You have to fully commit and then be willing to live with the results of what happens, right? So, you know, one of the things I, I, I tell everybody is like, if, if you end up having a lifelong career in music, you're going to have that album, that EP, that single, that you were just, to your point, you look back and go, I'm just embarrassed by this. How does an artist get past that and not let that define who they are for the rest of their career? Because we can all sit here and name every single artist on the planet who's been here for 30, 40, 50 years. And every single one of them has that album, Mm -hmm. that moment where they listen to the record label, they listen to the manager, they listen to countless other people, did what they Mm -hmm. was were told would make them number one and it didn't work. And now the fans are like, boy, that's the biggest embarrassment. How did you release that? You know, some artists will let that destroy their career moving forward. Other artists to your point will sit there and go, man, I'm embarrassed by that. But the next album, they've changed their entire headspace and come back with their most groundbreaking solid effort ever how, do, how does an artist do that well i think that you have to look at it like i i on i mean not to be too heavy-handed on the analogies but i've always really thought of it like a yearbook picture like you can know what to wear to school on that day and you can try and do your hair a certain way and capture a certain look but if you blink or if you have a pimple or a cold sore you know a stray hair or you look like a dork and that is commemorated in your yearbook that is how people will look back and remember you regardless of their experience with you. And sometimes you just have a bad yearbook photo, man. And some years you look back through your school and you're like, I look great. And some you're like, well, that was a stinker and that's okay. So for me, it was like, what did I take from that lesson? Cause I didn't have a record company with their, their hand on the wheel or a producer. 
I was firmly in charge. And one of the lessons was, one of the lessons that wasn't learned then that allowed for me to make the comeback groundbreaking record we're talking about theoretically or in practice with what I'm talking about, which this record actually happened to be that, was I, I just became willing to try something different. I listened to people that were saying, I people, I, I remember finishing a record, going to London, doing a rap song. This producer saying, this song we did is, is, is unbelievable. Like, this is almost its own genre of music. We could really change the whole game over here. Why don't you move to London and we start a band? I was like, oh man, I got this group back in the States and I'm gonna play you my record. And we, we, uh, we play him the record and he goes, yeah, this isn't good. And I was so taken aback and he, everything he said was right. And not only that, the next record that I did was I, the band broke up. I recorded three or four songs on my own dime. I did a, a, a little EP. I'm like, all the attention and care I put in for weeks at AM Studios, now Henson and the big room and the big budget and the big mixer and the, the beautiful Neve console. I just went into a studio and banged out like three or four songs that just meant something to me and were just taking total chances like I used to when I was younger and that were the right chances. I sent it to this guy in London and he goes, that's what I'm talking about. Let's put this out. I go, what do you mean? He goes, oh, I brought it to Virgin Records and I just signed a new label deal and I played it for the head of Virgin and he loves it. Would you move to London and can we just focus on this band? And I became willing to listen to him and take direction because he was one of the people that actually identified what was great about what I was doing. And as I get older, I know that the way to avoid that bad record or that clunker of a song on an otherwise solid album is to be willing to play it for people and not presume that I know everything and to be able to say, maybe somebody has a perspective that's valuable, which I can take in, which will allow me to see my creation and myself even from a different point of view. And maybe I need to make, to like um, collaborate. Yeah. 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 You know, and as you were explaining that, I'm thinking to myself, one of the things I, uh, I think we all hear about and encounter throughout a career in music is, you take you 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 tend to listen to credentials right meaning well you had a world tour and you're hugely successful and you sold a mil you must be an expert oh you're a record label president you must be an expert oh this album was recorded on this console if i use the same console i mean we get that all you know if i get the same guitar that john lennon used i'll write like john lennon if i record at abbey road my songs will be on the level of the Beatles. And I think one of the things you've got to get over is credentials don't mean anything really in music because music is a very personal thing. I mean, it's literally different for every single person. And if there was truly a person who had credentials and could say, yes, that's a hit, that person would literally be the entire music industry because they'd they be would a, be the Jeff Bezos of the industry. It, and exactly. They'd own everything. And every artist they touched would literally sell 10 million copies. And as we know, that's not the case, but people still tend to gravitate towards the, and, and why I bring this up, because as you were talking about the clunker album followed by the great album, going back to a little history here in early eighties, Kiss released a concept album called Music from the Elder. And right, right. It was, <laughs> it was produced by Bob Ezrin. Ezrin. Coming yep. right off of the wall. I know. Yeah. You know, so everybody's like, how can we not succeed? This is, he also produced the Destroyer album, which really set them off. This mm -hmm. is going to be great. And we're going to create a concept and we want to be the darlings of the media and we want to be respected. And anybody who knows any history, that album almost literally killed the band's career. It was so bad. But that follow up album, they sat down and go, yeah, we realize now that was the biggest mistake we ever made. And now what we're going to follow up creatures of the night. Wow. Which was an incredible, heavy back to metal album 
mm-hmm. that fans were like, okay, this is who you are. So, yeah. you know, here's, here's a band and you know, there's nothing. It's Bob Ezrin. Let's be honest. Bob Ezrin has got, uh, you know, credentials coming out of his Cooper Floyd. Boom. Just Everybody. Like, I mean, you, yeah, yeah. He, he's touched so much stuff that has yeah. become massive that, yeah. If Bob Ezrin says we should do this, let's do this. And I think that can be a problem for a lot of musicians, especially if you haven't gotten to a point where you've got some self-confidence in your own abilities that, you know, all that, that marketing person, that label person said, this is terrible and is a bad idea. Even though in your heart, you love it, you listen to the credentials and give up on it, or you follow their direction and it goes nowhere. I think that's part of a challenge that artists to this day still get caught up in, you know, and back to the simple things of, I got to record this on an incredible, I got to go to the record plant and record my album. No, you don't. I feel like that. I mean, yes, but I feel like to a lesser degree, I mean, I deal with a lot of young artists and I do think that like, in especially like in certain genres, like what there was a real like sea change when you'd go to guitar center and like people weren't going to the guitar section. They were going to like get turntables or DJ mixers or samplers or drum machines or just software. And I think that what technology has done has sort of stripped away some of that bad information like so that people can discover their own sound and figure out their own thing. And so I do think the proliferation of like, you know, the digital digital audio workstation world in which, you know, I can be making a record on this laptop I'm talking to you on and I can put it out to the world. While it may not create great art, while it may not mean that there is A&R or gatekeepers which can say, this is what we're putting money behind, this isn't. While it definitely makes the, the um, industry and the DSPs flooded with stuff that is hard as a consumer to cut through the noise what it did do is erase the idea that oh i gotta go to AM or i gotta go to record you're plan, 100% to right that. it did it did level the playing field it opened it up right. for everybody and and i always use the analogy of i remember in in the when would it have been it would have been late 80s apple released the macintosh then they released this thing called a laser writer which basically let you do what you see on the screen gets printed out. You no longer had to typeset, go to a printer. You could print a yeah. newsletter right on this laser writer. And the same conversations were happening. Oh my God, now everybody's going to think they can be a publisher and they can, right. and, and it did, it opened it up. But sure. what that just meant was you had to work your way through a lot of crap because there was still a lot of great stuff. We know, out that's, there. We know that's the case, right? And yeah. that's still the case now. And, and I guess what I'm what I'm getting to is there's still every once in a while the well, if I'm going to record, I have to have the top of the line, same laptop that Justin's using. And I've got right. to have the same software and the same plugins and the same yeah. keyboard, because that's what created your sound. And right. if I get all that together, I could create that sound. And, and the point being technology doesn't create quality work absolutely not it's still you the person that has to create the quality work they're just tools that laptop is nothing more than a guitar and if you don't know how to play a guitar it doesn't matter whether you're playing a fifty thousand dollar guitar or you're playing a sears guitar it doesn't matter 100 percent. yeah yeah i remember being in the studio with timbaland and we were making a song together and i and he was playing something off of the keyboard and he was coming left and right stereo out of the keyboard into a beautiful console in a very expensive recording studio. And I said, are you going to just do that? Like individually, just going to go like stereo out. He goes, man, like when, when we did like the rain, like, like when we did super duper fly with Missy Elliott, we came stereo out of the keyboard. He's like, we didn't like stem it out and have this multi-track. And I'm like, that was like a generational evergreen song that changed a lot of things in pop music. And, you know, we're people like me are like, oh, I want to read tape op or mix mag to know how they did it. And which pre did you exactly, use? Like, exactly. He's like, dude, I put it in the board. And it's always like that, man, because even if. 
it just, it's all, that's the truth. It just doesn't matter. Like whether you're talking about tennis and you're like, what racket do you play? It's like, doesn't matter. You're not going to hit it like her. Like mm-hmm. you're never going to play yeah. like yeah. that. So all that stuff is like, honestly, my honest opinion about it after doing this for a while is that all of that stuff is a distraction and a way that artists avoid doing the work. Because if I can think about, I have to light this incense and have this candle and this colored light, and I have to do it in this room and sit on these pillows and I can only write on this guitar. It's just a way for me to procrastinate from the inevitable task of having to actually sit down, throw my fishing line in the water and hope that I get a bite in trying to write this song. We can create the ritual, we can do all these things, we can have the certain plug-in or the perfect amplifier, but ultimately you're either going to receive the information that you spit out onto tape or a laptop, or you're not. And I think the rest is just uh, the things we do to psych ourselves up. Like, you know, we know this, pregame rituals, you watch athletes and they have to do certain things. It's like whatever it takes to get it done, it doesn't matter. Do you you think to some extent, you know, it's it's, it's the ritual of you, like you said, setting up the studio the way you want, but subconsciously, is it also preparing yourself to use that as the excuse when something didn't come out the way you wanted? Cause you could come back oh, and say, well, you know, I couldn't get the <laughs> same throw rug that I yeah. used 10 years ago. And my vo- I just didn't feel comfortable. I, I wasn't comfortable or I couldn't, I couldn't get the exact same I don't know, laptop, whatever it is, subconsciously, is that maybe also giving the musician an excuse if it doesn't work? I guess it depends on the artist. I mean, for me, I'm not looking for excuses. For me, I'm about the process. Like a lot of people write songs in order to get their feelings out or to express an emotion in order to do something cathartic that might even be life-saving to them or like help them cope. For me, I love process. I just love process. Like I love the act of doing, I I love theorizing about things, but the action of doing is more interesting to me. So for me, I love writing songs. I love recording songs. I like, I, 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 I even sometimes shy away from the word artist when I make music because it feels a bit pretentious. Although if you are filling out like um, banking information or loan application, it's probably, if it doesn't say entertainment, I definitely feel that what I do is more artful than it is entertaining. And so I would lean towards the word artist than I would entertainment industry. Um, Having said that, I feel like there's a craft to what I do. And I like craft. I like, like, I like the fact that I like programming drums. I like playing instruments. I like producing records. And, and when you walk into a room, there's nothing. And then you leave that room, there is a recording that, that was never there before. And, and, and you've somehow it's come a little bit through your own ideas, a little bit through inspiration, a little bit through some part of your memory that maybe you heard something like that 20 years ago or 20 days ago. I just like the craft of doing it. So I don't really know about other people, but for me, I just like to get down to it and there's no excuses. Some days it comes, some days it doesn't. Well, you know, and, and to that point, I didn't bring it up, but one of the things you talked about was like exercise as a form of recharging. And, you know, I'm not a musician. I tell people I've never written a song. I don't play an instrument. I'm a fan. I love music, but my creativity comes out in, in, in marketing and podcasts and Mm. building websites. It's everything's an art. It's just a different palette you work with. Very creative. Yeah. And, and I have found that, you know, when you hit that block that writer's block whatever it might be for you you can't sit down and force yourself through that block you've got to kind of you know step back and go watch that stupid sitcom from the 70s that makes you feel comfortable because when you relax all of a sudden something bolts out of you you know you get an inspiration from the show from a line or your brain just loosens up what i find you need to have is something right there immediately to record what that idea or thought was so you don't lose it but exercise can be that sometimes you just got to go out and walk ride a bike go to the gym just listen to some you know cheesy 80s music if that's what it is to just 
get yourself out of that situation and then things start flowing again. You can't force yourself out of a writer's block is what I'm saying. You're 100% right. And, and I would just add to that um, a couple of things. One is artists report on the condition of themselves in the world, right? Whether you're a painter, whether you're a novelist, whether you're a filmmaker, you are reporting about the human condition and you have to live that human condition in order to report it. And yep. it doesn't matter if you're telling uh, an actual like store, like a story, whether it's fictional, if you don't take in, you can't give out. I have a friend that was one of the most successful screenwriters of, of the time when he told me this anecdote and he had an incredibly massive film out. And we were talking about, you know, the writing process. And he's like, sometimes I just have to get up and do jumping jacks. And for me to give you an example of how this works in my creative process, I write music, I sit down, and I write the music. Very rarely is there a lyric or a melody involved. Sometimes I will walk over, I'll pick up a guitar and I'll just go and I'll start playing and singing something. I'm like, where'd that come from? I record it, there it is. There's the chorus of that big song. Oh my God, I can't believe it came out of nowhere. It came through me, don't know where it is. I didn't think it into existence. I started singing it, it came off my tongue, whoa. I pay a lot of credence to what comes out and, and honoring the thing that comes out rather than trying to better it. So I write music and I record it, but when it comes time for me to sing or write melodies or lyrics, I take that music and I drive in my car. And when I'm driving, I listen to the music and I start singing along to it and improv improvising. And, and I record that improvisation. And invariably, invariably the, insp the thing that comes from me singing is almost always the melody of what the song becomes and whatever I subconsciously sing as the opening line or the theme of what I'm saying, I never say, well, that's not gonna be a part of it because it just came out and I can do it better. I have to honor the fact that something came from outside of me that's inspiring and say, who am I to judge it? Just observe it like a meditation. Thought came in. Why did I write a song where I was, I was sitting there and I, you know, I'm sitting there and it goes, uh, and it says, uh, the lyric in a song says, um, she can never, he can never ever be so cruel and she can never fall asleep without her boyfriend. Like, I don't know where that lyric came from, but it's a catchy melody. It's a cool line. It's very, very visual. And whatever I then sit down to write later with this melody that came to me and a snippet of a lyric and story, that is the breadcrumb trail. And it's my job to follow that, to figure out what story I'm supposed to tell based on the clues that were given to me. And I'm not trying to get too like, you know, mystical about it, but if something comes to you like that, who am, who am I to be like, now nah, I can do better. <laughs> like, no, no, you're, you're, you're hundred percent right. I mean, you know, that, that's why the, the, the musicians who have brown been around for decades, you know, have just notebooks filled with blurbs. Yep. They've never used them, but they're like, that is the most incredible four word, sentence i've ever heard i don't know where i'll ever use it and maybe they end up using it 40 years later you don't know where when that inspiration hits what it's for that's why i'm like you gotta have when when something pops in your head you gotta have you know record it on your iphone you gotta write it down and never know whatever Always your, jot it down whatever yeah. your tool is write yep. it down right away i was gonna make a quick comment about what is it about music in cars that mm is so important you know it's like you know you you record a song and it's been mixed you listen to it in the, it studio, to the car <laughs> but you want to put it on throw it on a cd and let's go sit in the car and listen to it because it almost has a different feel vibe there's something about hearing music coming out of a car that does something to you that you don't get anywhere else it's just, it's, it, I mean, it's just an observation yeah. for me, but you know, you Powerful. hear that all the time. No, it's, it's a, like, it's a great observation. So many musicians are like, there's nothing like hearing your song on a car radio. I mean, who listens to radio anymore these days, yeah. but still there's nothing like hearing it the first time on a car radio. What does that do? It's one of those weird things about mm -hmm. a car and music that they go so well together. Um, it's I know also uniquely we, American. 
it, like just sorry to interrupt but it's a cars it, are a very american yeah thing, and that's it's part of a car culture right yep. and so then if you look at another uniquely american an american created form of music which is rap music when we started making hip-hop we always took it out to the car before we took it anywhere else because we want to know how it how it it, uh, it sounds but also the thing of with me from my lyric writing is it frees me up from thinking it's like it frees me up from thinking or looking at a blinking cursor on a word app yes. or program or a blank page and a pen it frees me up so that i can get into an action and i can have it's it's about how do i get my brain out of it and how do i get subconscious it, it, exactly and it's like exercising it's like exercising you're you're driving a car so you hopefully are paying attention to the road and other cars yep. But as we all do in cars, you'll sing along the songs. You'll you zone out a little. I, yeah. Ideas pop in. Oh my God, this I forgot this to do task that I needed yep. to do three months ago. It just pops in. You're right. It's something. It frees your mind from a single focus to a little more room, I guess, as I would describe it. That's a great way of describing it: is room, creating room um, for it to come in. Final question I got, because, man, again, we could talk for hours here about this stuff. You know, you talked about you've got to kind of experience life. You've got to experience things if you're going to write about it. So, you know, one of the things we've always heard all the time is, can somebody sing a deeply passionate love song, breakup song that was maybe written by a outside songwriter mm -hmm. can you sing it with passion and true meaning if you've never experienced that true deep painful breakup or that true incredible love mm -hmm. you can fake it mm -hmm. but you, you know what i'm saying can can a musician really present it like they mean it if they've never really felt how do you sing about a breakup if you've never broken up that's a good question. I mean, what I would say is only just for me, it's um, I think that there's a lot of type of music that I enjoy and not all of it is like um, not all not always is the emotion of the singer what what elicits emotion in myself. Sometimes it's the word. Sometimes it's a phrasing. Sometimes there's an emotionless delivery. Um, you know, Lou Reed sang in a monotone. And if he says, you know, if he sings perfect day and it's very monotone and he's not singing it with a traditional, you know, it's not meatloaf emotion, but it's a certain kind of emotion. I, I, I think that everything hits everybody differently. So for me, I think that absolutely you don't have to have lived it to have written it, right? And I don't think you have to have felt it in order to um, find meaning in it. Um, for me, when I step on stage, sometimes I'm thinking about the words that I'm saying. Sometimes I'm looking into the crowd and trying to find something in the moment that will inspire me to sing it in the way that I've never sang it before. Because what I try and do with live music is I try and sing it and perform it in a way that's truly authentic to the moment. So somebody's heckling me from the back, it's gonna be a different performance than another time. It's really important to me that I'm doing it differently so that it can keep it fresh for me. And so I'm not phoning it in in a way that the person from last night's having the same experience. Doesn't mean I sing it differently. It means that my focus and attention is trying to be in the moment and ex ex um, experiencing what's happening on stage and in the crowd as if for the first time ever. And I learned that through being in a theater group when I was um, younger. And it was about being in the moment and not going to the past and sense memory or thinking about the past or the future. But if you're totally rooted in the moment and all of a sudden you hear a door creak, that's gonna affect your singing. So I just believe that like you could experience it anyway, whether you wrote it, whether you didn't, whether you felt it and experienced it, whether you haven't. Um, I think there's so many different ways and I don't know if there's any rules to it, but I think everybody's so different because it's such a unique and individual thing. Um, one thing I wanted to say though, too, is you had another question that we didn't um, address because we got off on so many other good things and you brought up so many awesome points, but, and I, and I went off on them, but um, you know, when you said the thing about not knowing why someone would be in your life, you know, something actually came to mind when you said that. And um, I had a meeting a couple of days ago with somebody and I said, Hey, like I found you online and, uh, and, and you do LinkedIn and social media and a friend posted about you. And I was like, Oh, we're supposed to meet. 
And I was just very candid. When we talked, I was like, I don't know why you and I are having this general meeting right now, but I just feel like there's a reason. Yes, it's also because you work with someone I've worked with in the past that's meaningful to me, but I don't know why, but I want to let you know about me and I want to know about you. And then we'll find out what that thing is later, or it was just nice to meet you. But the way that you never know that someone can matter in your life, I'll tell you a very quick last anecdote. There was an A&R person many years ago in the early, in the mid nineties, who I was told wanted to meet with me, who was interested in signing me. And so I sat down with that person and they said, Hey, if you ever go work with that producer that you worked with in the past, I'd be interested in signing you to a deal. I know what you're doing now musically, but I really love you with this producer. And it was actually the person who brought me to London. So it was something aligned with what I wanted to do. I was like, this is great. I did a follow-up meeting with my bandmate and we went in to meet with this person and we sat in the waiting room and we said, Hey, we're here to meet this person. And we waited for over an hour and I've never been, I'd, I've never waited that long for somebody. It was really pretty insulting. And after a while we got up and we left. And for a couple of years, I was kind of salty about that person. Not so much that it affected my life, but if somebody brought it up, I'd be like, yeah, like the guy was kind of a jerk. He kept us waiting. And then years later, I had a new band and he got in touch and he came over to my house to play me music and my never hold a grudge in the business thing. He came over to my house. I played him music and then he listened. He loved it. And we talked afterwards and I go, I got to tell you, I was a little bit like hesitant to have you come over because that time you kept me waiting in the office so long. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they never even really told him. He didn't know. Wow. He wasn't keeping me waiting. And not only did I not sign with that person, but I had the, the presence of mind not to, and the, the wisdom to not hold a grudge, to form a new relationship with this person. And that was in 1999. And in 2003, I picked up a record by a band I loved called Blonde Redhead. And I looked at the back of the album and it said management, Tom Sarig. And I said, that's the guy that almost signed me and that the thing and the, and I called him and I said, hey, you're a manager now? He said, yeah. I said, that's crazy. Like, I had no idea. He's like, what's up? I'm like, me and my buddy just signed to Geffen Interscope and we have a band and we're looking for a manager. And are you going to be in LA anytime soon? And he, I sent him the music. He listened to it. He flew to LA. He became our manager. We came up with the marketing plan and figured out what we could do. And he was instrumental in the change in my life and what happened with She Wants Revenge. We no longer work together. He's still someone I call as a mentor and as a friend. And we spoke a week ago. And had I had some feelings about being made to wait in his office, yeah. I would have blocked some of the biggest opportunities of my life. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's funny, as you were sharing that story, I'm like, it's sort of like going back to how you would be driving in a car and and a lyric would blurt out and you just write it down, even though you don't know what you might use it for. That person you might cross paths with, I there, your may, life. There, they may, there may not be any direct and immediate business to be done, but maybe 20 years from now, because yeah. you remembered who they were and kept their information, now they come back into your life at the moment they were supposed to be there. Supposed now. to, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. And it's being open to those things. It's not doing anything. It's not just being open. It's not doing anything that closes yourself off from the possibilities and opportunities of what could be or maybe should be based on how you feel or what you think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in you should never mix business and pleasure, meaning you, you, you can you can have a person that you personally don't like. You would never hang out with them. You never go to a bar with them, but they might be a perfect match to work in a business context. And you yeah. shouldn't let your personal feelings yeah. interfere with the ability to do business with them. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and that goes to like, well, just because somebody you're, 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 you're dating somebody and they've got a son who happens to play guitar. That also doesn't mean that becomes your guitar player. You don't bring right. in personal into business when it doesn't make sense for the business. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it just goes back to don't burn bridges. It's yeah. such an old saying in the music industry. 
the people you meet on the way up are the same people you're going to meet on the way down and they might be able to help your career. 100%. And by the way, not only is that correct, but in my experience, it's not up and down, it's peaks and valleys. Yes. But it's well, actually exactly. a journey. So yep. you're going to probably see those people all along the way. Yeah. And so yeah. Don't, how do don't, you don't, to- don't, don't, don't piss off that bar owner who yeah. tried to stiff you for playing his bar, you know, a, a, yeah. a week ago, because he might be booking for Live Nation five years from now. He probably will be. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just don't know. It's it's such a network community and everybody knows everybody who knows everybody. I mean, everybody's got a friend who knows this person who's this person. And that last person can tell you about the first person. I mean, you don't want to risk that. And the way that you navigate that is by not taking things personally. And yeah. that's the most important lesson to people that are starting out is, Somebody, if you sit in front of somebody and you play them your demo and they pass on it, you don't write down their name, put it on a slip of paper in your pocket that you're going to like, screw them. I'm never going to work with them again. They hated my music. It's like, because by the way, I've literally had people I've literally, I've sat in front of executives that for whatever reason, we did not sign the deal. And four years later, they signed the deal with me to a different project. So you just never know. You, you, you never know. And I mean, when it comes to a lot of stuff like that, you definitely don't know what's going on behind the scenes business wise that might have forced that decision to happen. You know, somebody may not sign you because the reality is they know that in six months they're leaving the company. The business is being sold. They're going bankrupt, whatever it might be. You don't know. Never know. Never know. Justin, this was this was a great conversation of just sort of getting into the mind of a musician. I, I love this. I love this. And I've really you know, enjoyed it. Thank sometimes you. you need to do that. Even if you're a musician, get out of the worrying about marketing, get out of the business and just remember what it's like to be a musician and what goes on. You know, I always tell people you should never forget what it's like to be a fan. Mm, yeah. At the end of the day, you, you may not be able to be a fan of yourself because you're on one side of the velvet rope and fans are always on the other side. But you're a fan of somebody and you should always remember. I'm that. a super fan. I'm a yeah. super. Everybody's it's, it's, a super fan of yeah. somebody. Remember, it's the that only feeling. it's the only thing that keeps me going. It's not my own thing. If I yeah. don't stay passionate about the things that I care about and find new things to care about, I'm creatively dead in the water. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've got to just sometimes remove the business and just be a musician, be a fan, be creative. Don't be afraid to be creative and, and, you know, never let the business, the economy, the finances dictate when you should and shouldn't be creative. Well said. Justin, where can people find you online? they want to follow you they want to see what you're absolutely i mean the most simple way is justinwarfield.com there's links to everything that i do whether it's the film projects whether it's my work at downright as an artist that's available for custom song commission whether it's um finding out about the platform which i told you i'm the vice president of a and r and label services it's a custom song commission place for artists to make money equitably in the music industry direct to with the fans creating music that then they can put out it's an incredible thing that i encourage people to look at that's downright.com on instagram it's at get downright and because i'm a social media kid and i still love that and do the scroll every day and the likes you can find me at justin warfield on all handles but uh yeah if there's anybody that wants to message me about something if it's just like i love talking to people that have advice or questions and I read all of my DMs, like, so I, I'm, I'm very available and reachable. Awesome. Justin, once again, thank you so much for, for taking some time out of your day to sit down with thank us. Thank you and, for having me. So and just fun. sharing what it's like to be a musician. Yeah, it's fun. I'm not going to lie. It's a good gig. <laughs> yeah, you can't complain, can you? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me. Uh... Visit musicbizweeklypodcast.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. 
subscribe and leave a review what on a great iTunes. Conversation that we was appreciate Justin. you know support. as 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 a fan as like i said somebody who's not a musician i love learning what it's like to be a musician what goes on in the head of a musician and there's just so much practical advice that justin had and you know what i would highly encourage anybody who's listening you know, if you've encountered some of these same issues, how have you dealt with them? If you've got questions about how to deal with it, head over to our new um, artist community on Bands in Town. Just head over to bandsintown.musicbizweeklypodcast.com. You can leave a comment or a question on this episode. You can post a new thread. Um, it's a great place to pick the brains of other people in the industry and other musicians. And Jay and myself, Jay, who's unfortunately out this this episode because he's got some client business, we're there. We'll chime in when we uh, when we need to. But we would love to hear back from everybody who's listening. What do you think about this episode? Have you run into these issues of of you know burning bridges? Have you had another band member who's burnt a bridge? You know, how do you deal with with creativity? Um, you know, there's so much great, great real world advice here. So head over to bandsintown.musicbizweeklypodcast.com. Join the community. And of course, before we wrap up, just a quick shout out. Thank you to Bruce and everybody at HypeBot and Bands in Town for your continued support. And of course, our sponsors, bandzoogle.com and discmakers.com. Thank you so much. And we'll see everybody next week. Visit DiscMakers.com to place an order for 100 or more CDs. And when you check out, use promo code FREEBIZ and Voices get free for music shipping biz up weekly to a $150 value. LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.